All right. Um, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Now, if you've been with us, you know that this year what we did is we took a journey through the book of Acts. 52-week journey through the book of Acts. And what I've been looking at the last two Sundays is the fact that Paul's life did not end with the book of Acts. In fact, Luke finished the book of Acts while Paul was still alive in his first imprisonment in Rome. But what we learn from Paul's last eight letters he wrote is that he took one last missionary journey, which people call his fourth missionary journey. Uh, he wrote on that missionary journey the books of Titus and 1 Timothy from the town of Nicopolis, which is on the west side of Greece. And then soon after that, he was arrested a second time back in Rome, but this time his imprisonment was a lot worse, right? His first time, we're told at the end of the book of Acts, that people would come and see him in a rented house, that he only had one soldier attached to him, but he was training people every day, receiving people from out of town, receiving people from in the city of the Rome. It was a great situation for him, and he knew that he was going to be released. In fact, the letters he wrote at that time in Philippians and Philemon, he says, hey, prepare a guest house for me because uh, I'm going to come and visit you. And he did indeed visit those people. But this time, in 2 Timothy, he's in a much worse situation. This time, we're told that it was very difficult for anybody to find him. People had to search really hard to find him because he's in a much more dire situation. This time, we're told that he is, expects to die. In fact, he talks about in this letter how he's being poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering was the last offering that was uh, given in the daily offerings at the, uh, at the temple. It, sig it signified a completion of something. He's like, my life is now complete. And so what does he do as his life is coming to the end, as he's fought the good fight, as he's kept the faith, as he's now finished the race? The last thing on his heart is to pour forth something to his main disciple. In fact, one he calls, as we saw last Sunday, his beloved son, the man Timothy. In fact, in Philippians he says, I have no one like-minded like Timothy. So, so when I send him to you, receive him. This Timothy guy, he, he had the same sort of heart. He had the same sort of character. He had the same sort of love. He had the same sort of purpose that Paul had. This was a guy that um, was with Paul at the beginning of his second missionary journey and continued with him for about 15 to 20 years. And, and Paul had really poured into this man. And, and he sees, in, in, in essence, as he's about to be beheaded there in Rome under Nero, he sees himself as passing the torch of the faith and of the ministry to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, you know, I'm going to go to be with glory, but you're still going to be here. So let me give you some last instructions. Let me give you some last words to encourage you on the great assignment, the great task that's in front of you. In fact, he calls Timothy, in, in his two letters, he calls him a youth, a youth. Even though we know that Timothy is probably 35 to 40 years old at this time, he calls him a youth and he says, don't let anyone despise your youth. Uh, we know he was about 35 to 40 years old because he joined him when he was 20 years old, about uh, 15 years earlier on his second missionary journey. So he's a, he's a younger man 
35 to 40 years old, and Paul is writing this letter to him. And let's pick up in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and see some of the last things that are on Paul's heart to, depart, uh, to impart to this beloved son in the faith. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. He says, You therefore, my son, again he calls him his son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I just want to stop right there. <laughs> I mean, we could do a whole message right there just on that. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The first point I just want to emphasize this morning is this. Being strong in the grace of Jesus Christ must undergird all ministry. Being strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ must undergird all ministry. You know, one thing that Paul is reminding Timothy of in both his first letter and his second letter is that Timothy had a very difficult task in front of him. In general, ministry is difficult, but the season in which Timothy was in, in which basically the entire world was erupting and falling apart, uh, uh, Israel was just being invaded from 66 to 70 AD, Rome had just turned against the church with Nero going crazy and, and crucifying Christians and burning them as human torches. I mean, Timothy was in a very difficult season. People were apostatizing from the faith, leaving the faith. False teachers weren't infiltrating the church. And, and, and in light of all the world collapsing around him, Paul says that what he really needed to do was to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I tell you what, we, we think we have it bad today. And, and in some ways, you know, our world is a little shaky today. But Timothy had it a lot worse even. And if, if Timothy could be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus when his world was shaking, so can we. You know, um, grace is not just for the beginning of the Christian walk. You know that? It's not like you're saved by grace, but now, you know, you got to just on your own effort and your own striving continue to live the Christian life. No, rather, grace is not only what brings us into the faith, but grace is what keeps us moving on course. Grace is what energizes us for the work that God is calling us to do. Grace is ultimately what helps us to keep the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us, which is to love one another even as he has loved us. We all constantly need to be reminded to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need to say, my position spiritually is in Christ Jesus, and Jesus Christ is in me. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me. That's what it means to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's recognizing your union with Him. What is grace? It's just the undeserved favor, the unmerited goodness of God. And Paul is saying that is where your life has to be planted, Timothy, each and every day. Remember to be strong in that place. You know, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 15.10, talking about his own ministry, and he was comparing his ministry to the other apostles, people like Peter and John and James and Andrew and all those guys. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. 
Can you imagine Paul saying that? I worked harder than Peter. I worked harder than John. Yet, now he clarifies, not I. But the grace of God that was with me. You know, the thing is, is the way we labor more abundantly, the way, you know, what is Acts, the book of Acts, all about? I've mentioned several times that the outline of the book of Acts comes off of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where, where Jesus tells his disciples, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you, meaning not just the apostles, but all the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How are we going to be good witnesses for Jesus? How are we going to shine like lights in the world? By being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We can never remove ourselves from that realm. Right? We need to be strong in His unmerited favor. We need to be strong in His unfailing love. The ESV translates it like this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The, the humbler we become, the stronger we become, right? When I am weak, then I am strong. His grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness, right? Timothy, humble yourself before the Lord and be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. What does he say in verse 2? And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let's stop right there. You know, this is really one of the themes in Paul's letters to Timothy, right? He's saying, Timothy, you have been gifted by God and appointed by God for some very important tasks. And one thing you're supposed to do is the things that have been committed to you, you're supposed to commit these to others, right? There's supposed to be a chain of discipleship happening. You're supposed to pour into the lives of others like I have poured into into your life, right? The, The church is about, you know, we constantly need to see others raised up under us, right? You know, it was weighing heavy on Paul's heart in light of his impending death. He desired to see many leaders raised up all around the world so they could disciple others in the way of Christ. And in one sense, this is the duty of every Christian. We should have some person in our life, maybe multiple people, who we are seeking to build up with what we know about the Lord. You know, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your grandchild, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's your coworker. You need to be rubbing off on them. Maybe it's someone new in the Lord who you know, and you say, you know what, let me help you in your walk with the Lord. Let's pray together. Let's get in the Word together. Let me encourage you some things I know about the Lord who will help, that will help you on your life, you know, help you in your life. And, um, you know, we're all in different places in our walk with the Lord, but all of us here do know truths that have transformed us, right? We know something about Jesus. And we should all seek to commit these truths to others. But Paul, of course, he's even more specifically dealing with Timothy's training of leaders. And Paul wants the men Timothy is spending time training to be faithful men. Meaning what? Meaning men who are full of faith, who are loyal, who are reliable. On top of that, he wanted Timothy to train people so that they would be able to transmit what they had also learned. He wanted uh, to raise up many more Timothys under Timothy. You know, I think of Paul when he was in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is right now. He's writing to Timothy who's in Ephesus. And when Paul was in Ephesus, the book of Acts tells us that for two years, every single day, 
Paul taught in the school of Tyrannus. What does that mean? Paul had a Bible school going on, and it was, he was raising up many pastors who were not just serving in the suburbs of Ephesus, but that were serving in all of the surrounding cities of Ephesus. And people would come there to the school of Tyrannus every single day and say, Paul, teach us the truth of the gospel. Teach us what it means to be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Teach us what it means to be the body of Christ. And now who's probably leading this, this teaching in Ephesus? Well, it's Timothy. And Paul is saying, what I was doing there in Ephesus, Timothy, I want you to be doing the same thing. You know, faithful schools of ministry are essential for the church. You know that? We need faithful seminaries. Seminaries that are full of faith. Unfortunately, a lot of seminaries in America, they're lacking in, 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 in that aspect. Sadly, actually. We need faithful Bible schools who will uncompromisingly teach the Bible and the gospel truth, right? We need, uh, we need churches that are filled with pastors and leaders who actually believe what they preach, right? And who can help their people rightly divide the word of truth, which is what we'll get into here in, in a moment. Look what it says in verse 3. Paul writes, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all these things. So, you know, Paul, in his letters, right, he can only say so much. So he gives three images here of what the faithful minister in the church is to look like. And this is the second point I want to make. Point number two, Christ's ministers are like professional soldiers, professional athletes, and hard-working farmers. Or they should be like this, right? Christ's ministers are like professional soldiers, professional athletes, and hard-working farmers. Um, you know, the first example he gives is that of a soldier. In fact, in, um, he, he says, Timothy must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He already had compared Timothy's ministry to that of a soldier in his first letter, in 1 Timothy, there he wrote that Timothy was to wage a good warfare. You know, the idea of the Christian life as a battle runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. You know that, in fact, the way that the Israel was camped around the tabernacle in the Old Testament, you know how they're described? They're described as a heavenly host, which simply means a heavenly army. Just as like God's angel armies surround his thrones in heaven, so... God's people are his earthly armies who surrounded him on this earth. In fact, that's why when they would blow the trumpets, they were called at that moment to march out in war. God would go before them in the Ark of the Covenant, and then each camp would follow them. And, and they were basically the army of the Lord. Um, you know, this, this runs into the New Testament as well. In fact, Paul especially likes the image of the church as soldiers, he calls both Archippus and Epaphroditus his fellow soldiers. He tells all the Christians in Ephesus, we like this one, I think you all know this one, to put on the full armor of God, right? 
Roman soldiers in Paul's day were not entangled in other affairs of life. In fact, the Roman code of Theodosius said this, We forbid men engaged on military service to engage in civilian occupations. What did that mean? They were all professional soldiers, nothing but soldiers. And that meant that there was a total commitment. It meant that these guys were all in. Think about a soldier when he enters the service. He leaves everything else behind, right? In fact, when he gets there, they even shave his head, right? He, he, he leaves his hair behind. He's got fully new clothes. He's got a, a fully new um, time schedule that he's working on. Everything about his life is now totally committed to the service of his commander. And um, they expect uh, a hardship. Uh, they're prepared and trained from morning to evening in the tactics of warfare. You know, yesterday was Veterans Day, right? A day when the United States, it honors military veterans, honors given to these men and women because they put their life at risk for the safety of the nation and for the safety of others. Well, how much more should we honor the soldiers of Jesus Christ? And it is not just Christian leaders who are soldiers, but we all are, right? We all put on the full armor of God. We all, in a sense, are to understand that there is a spiritual warfare that is constantly going around us, right? And we say, you know what, I'm going to be a good soldier for Jesus. This is going to be fun. Jesus is my commander. I'm going to put on the full armor of God. I'm going to be armed with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And I don't care what's going around in life. I'm going to be victorious, right? Because i got faith in Jesus Christ. Who is he who overcomes? The one who has faith in Jesus Christ. I like the song, Onward Christian Soldiers. Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banner go. Onward Christian Soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Amen. Amen. You know, I've been studying the book of Revelation a lot the last month and a lot of other uh, stuff concerning um, end times, which I want to teach in the new year. Uh, but one thing that I love in the book of Revelation is the picture of Jesus in Revelation 19. And it shows him going out to war. It shows him going out to battle, bright shining as the sun. And he's riding on a white horse. And there's a sword that's coming out of his mouth. Why? Because it's the word of God. It's defeating the enemies. And it says that behind Jesus, riding in victory, riding in his risen and resurrected state, it says that behind him, the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Amen. Who is that? That is his church. That is his body. That is his bride. That is you and me. We are the army of the Lord. Amen. And we follow our commander into battle. And just as the sword came out of his mouth, so the sword comes out of our mouth. And I tell you what, it doesn't matter. The enemy that stands in our way, he's defeated in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, after he says, consider what a soldier's like, he says, consider what a professional athlete is like. He says, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, he actually uses specifically 
The, the term here is a word that specifically referred to professional athletes. And what I find interesting when we read Paul's letters is he uses examples from three different athletic events. He talks about track and field in Philippians and 2 Timothy. He talks about boxing in 1 Corinthians 9. He talks about wrestling in Ephesians 6. In fact, at the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, we'll see this in a few weeks, that he talks about how I have what? Fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have what? I have finished the race. He uses two examples there of, of athletics for his own ministry. And I don't know if Paul was a sports fan, but he certainly knew the world of sports was something people could relate to, right? I think especially, you know, sports are big in America today, and I think people can relate to that as well. You know, to Timothy, he says that an athlete isn't crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know what this makes me think? It makes me think that Paul is reminding Timothy that he doesn't have the right to make up his, a new form of Christianity, right? There is no such thing as cafeteria Christianity, right? That I just kind of pick and choose the things I like from the Bible and say, well, these are my rules. <laughs> um, no. Timothy was supposed to make use of all Scripture, right? For, as Paul will say in the very next chapter, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable to the Christian life. You know, let me draw a comparison to football here. How many here, um, how many here watch football? Anyone here watch football? Now, how many know that when your team scores, it's exciting? But how many know sometimes, all of a sudden you see that red, or not red, you see the yellow flag, and you're, oh my, flag. We just scored an 80-yard touchdown. Now they just called holding, a silly holding call on this lineman or receiver, whatever. Now we have to come back all the way 90 yards. Well, that's what, what Paul, is, well, Paul is saying. You have to compete, right, according to the rules. In the same way, you know, listen, in football, you have to compete according to the rules or else you're not going to win. Um, so if we do things according to the flesh and not according to the spirit, guess what? It's all going to be burned up. It has no lasting eternal value. But when we walk in Christ, when we walk according to the Spirit, when we live the life of love that He has given us, this has lasting value. You know, the third example Paul gives is that of a hardworking farmer. He, he says the hardworking farmer is the first to partake of the crops. This reminded Timothy that the work of the ministry Timothy was in would require effort like a farmer. It would require patience, like a farmer. And, and, and Paul reminds Timothy that he must be the first to partake, meaning if you have spiritual food to give someone else, guess what? You need to make sure that you've ingested it first. In fact, this is why when a, when a preacher preaches, they first and foremost should be preaching to who? To themselves. In fact, you know, whenever I preach, I, I preach as I prepare to myself, but even as I'm preaching, you know, I, I know I'm preaching to myself. In fact, I'll go back, usually on Saturdays, and I'll re-listen to my sermon from the prior Sunday. Why? Because I'm preaching to myself, and I'm trying to remind myself, right? I, I, I need this word just as much as anybody else does. Uh, another thing I think this has to do with is the Christian must uh, first have the word rooted in his own heart if he's going to be able to give that word to others. 
You know, when Paul is speaking of farming metaphors in 1 Corinthians, he says, he says this, 1 Corinthians 9.14. He says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. I think one thing he's telling Timothy in terms of being a full-time soldier, being a professional athlete, and being a hardworking farmer, is he's saying, you know, um, it's good for there to be full-time ministers in the church. In fact, that's optimal. And, and in, in Corinthians, he's specifically talking about hardworking farmers in 1 Corinthians 9, but he's also talking about those who officiate at the temple and give sacrifices and how part of the sacrifices were given back to them. And their ministry was a full-time work. It was a full-time job. And so Paul, he looks at that and he says, look, typologically, when we think about this in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. How? So in that way, the gospel can thrive. The church can thrive because there can be ministers who can have that dedication that soldiers have, that dedication that athletes have, that dedication that a hardworking farmer has. So I'm sure that as, 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 as Timothy is organizing the church there in Ephesus and the surrounding area, they are you know, allocating funds in a way to which that sort of thing could indeed take place. And, and the church could, could grow from that. Uh, you know, that sort of administration. In, in 2 Timothy 2, look what he goes on to say in verse 8. Remember, so he just gave him these really, I mean, big, big images to think about. You know, this was a hard task Timothy was called to. Then look what he does in light of that. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble, as an evendoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The third point I want to make is this. Point number three. Always remember the risen and reigning Christ Jesus. This is another way that we're strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is by always remember. He calls on Timothy, remember, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David. What does that mean? Meaning just as David was a king and it was promised that his seed would forever reign on a throne. Remember, that's who Jesus is. He is king. Remember, it is that Jesus who is risen from the dead according to my gospel. This is something that I've been emphasizing all year, right? Because Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and he said, from this time forward, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, right? What is he talking about? He's talking about Daniel 7, when the Son of Man comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days to receive an everlasting kingdom. He says, you will perceive my reign on earth. You will understand that I am reigning in heaven. How will they understand that he is reigning in heaven? Because miracles are going to be performed in the name of Jesus. Because his prophecies that he prophesied on the, Olive, that, uh, uh, on the Mount of Olives would come take place right before their eyes. Because they would see the effects of the growing church and they would understand, yes, we do see that the Son of Man has come on the clouds to the Ancient of Jays to receive an everlasting kingdom. I see it today, right? And what I need to do is I need to constantly remember that truth. 
I need to remember that Jesus is risen. I need to remember that he is reigning. I need to remember that as Ephesians 4 said, he ascended, that he might fill all things, that he has poured out his life inside of me, that he is not far from me, but that his risenness and his kingdom is a present reality that I participate in. And what does it do? It encourages me. It makes me strong in grace. It makes me strong in my assignments. You know, there is no way that Timothy could be a hard-working farmer or a good soldier unless he's constantly reminded of that truth. You know, uh, a better translation, that New King James actually is not the best translation of this verse in verse 8 because it says, was raised from the dead. But most of the other translations say something like, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Because the verb tense there in the Greek, it, it isn't just a past tense, like he was raised one day 2,000 years ago. But it's in something called the perfect tense, meaning it has lasting impact today. Remember that Jesus is risen, and his present risenness is at work among you. That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. Okay. And, uh, and when you remember that, guess what? He says it will help you endure through difficult times, even through suffering. And when you have that message in your heart, even if you're in chains like I am, Timothy, awaiting, you know, to be uh, enter into the glory of the Lord, just remember that that message is never chained. That message is never chained, no matter what situation you're in. Jesus is still risen. Jesus is still reigning. Second Timothy two verse eleven. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Wow. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Wow. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Wow. He cannot deny himself. So, now Paul... After reminding Timothy that Jesus is risen and reigning, he reminds him of a faithful saying. Apparently, this was a, a saying that was common in the early Christian circles that was said, uh, you know, repeatedly. In, in fact, Paul talks about five faithful sayings in First and Second Timothy and, and Titus, and this is one of those five faithful sayings. And, and he says that if we die with Christ, remember, we also live with him. We are buried with him in baptism, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. That if we endure, we will also reign with him. And he reminds us that if we deny him, he will also deny us. You know, this, that, he's actually, that faithful saying, you know who that faithful saying's from? It's from our Lord Jesus himself. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men... Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Aren't you glad for that? And in fact, I think in Luke it says, in all the angels. Verse 33. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's the word of the Lord Jesus. Now, we know that even a sin of denial against the Son of Man can be forgiven. Aren't you glad for that? That's what we have in the example of Peter. Someone who denied Jesus three times. In fact, he didn't just deny him. He denied him with an oath. In the name of the Lord, he said he didn't know Jesus. And then he began to curse Jesus, call down curses on Jesus. That was forgiven. Aren't you glad for that? Jesus is ever faithful even when we are faithless. He is ever restoring. 
I think what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10 is that if you persistently deny me before men and die with that denial in your heart, well, then I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. But Jesus doesn't want any of us to die with a denial, amen? He wants all men to repent and be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he is faithful to us and he is loving towards us. And when people deny him, I believe he still looks at them like he looked at Peter in his denial with that loving gaze reminding Peter of his, his promises that he had given to him before, right? Because he is faithful to us even when we're faithless to him. 2 Timothy 2 verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit. Who's he talking about? The other ministry leaders in Ephesus. Remind them of these faithful sayings. And, and not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What's the word of truth? This is the word of truth. <laughs> in fact, this is what uh, Paul will call all scripture in the next chapter. In, in fact, he's primarily referring to what? The Old Testament, right? I mean, I think he's referring to a lot of the New Testament too, but primarily referring to the Old Testament. And this is the fourth point I want to make is this, point number four. Ministers must be diligent to properly handle scripture. Must be diligent. You know, one thing, uh, I'm reminded of this verse because... I first started in ministry five days after I turned 18. I, I was a senior in high school, and the prison chaplain, the head prison chaplain out at Wayside Princess Detention Center, he said, you need to come to prison and preach to the prisoners. So I came up there with my Bible, turned to 1 Peter 5. I still remember the first message I preached. 1 Peter 5. I preached for about, you know, 10 minutes. And it was... You know, it was really powerful. All the men, there were about 20 prisoners. I don't even know. You know, some of them were in there. They're, they're, they were waiting their sentences. Some of them, you know, were up for murder, all sorts of things. And they all came around me and hugged me and prayed for me. But one thing that chaplain did is he, he's given me about 20 study Bibles. And at the beginning of every study Bible, he writes 2 Timothy 2.15. And he writes it in the King James, the old King James, which says this, Study to show yourself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, here's the thing. Who, who are we supposed to show ourselves approved to? Approved to God. Approved to God. You know, God's approval is the only approval that matters. It's not the approval of the congregation. It's not the approval of your family or your friends. It's not the approval of those who give the most money to the church, right? No, what matters is that the pastor seeks the approval of God. And they are diligent to be a servant of God in ministering that word to others. You know, it's very tempting, like Paul says here to Timothy, it's tempting for a minister to get sidetracked with words that don't profit man. And they argue about silly, tertiary things. But here's the thing. What is always profitable to men is Scripture. And so Timothy is, that's what I want you to focus on, is rightly dividing that word of truth, not other stuff. 
and um, make the text of Scripture the focus of your ministry. Paul knew the power of, of Scripture, right? He was transformed by the living word. And in his last letter, he truly presses this point home with Timothy. You know, Timothy, I know you've studied. I've seen you studied. You're like-minded just like me. You've poured over the scriptures. Well, I'm just going to remind you again, even though it's been 15, 20 years, continue to study to show yourself approved. A workman that need not be ashamed, right? And what does he say? He says he's to rightly divide the word of truth. That word rightly divide there just means to cut straight. Uh, it's kind of, it, in fact, we, we know that, that verse Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. In, in, in the Greek, what it means is he, he will rightly divide the path for you. He, he, he will make it uh, straight for you. And, and that's what we do when we're rightly dividing the Word. It's like we're, we're opening the Word to someone so that they understand there's an understanding, there's an illumination through the Spirit there, where the servant is kind of like the priest rightly divided the sacrifices and offered the right portions on the altar and gave the right portions to the people and the priests. Well, when a minister rightly divides the word, they're, they're setting the offering in, in a place where everyone can receive it, where everyone can digest it, where everyone can understand it, where the Holy Spirit can shed illumination on it. That's what to rightly divide means. And you know, guess what? This isn't always an easy process. In fact, Peter says in his letter in 2 Peter, he says some of the things Paul wrote are hard to understand. That's why we need to be diligent, right? That's why um, a minister, in a sense, should labor in the Word of God, to make every effort, to seek to understand the context of the text they are speaking on, to seek to understand how it fits into the larger story of the Bible, to see how then it can be applied to the, to the listeners of our own day, right? This is, this is why, you know, handling the Word of God, we just don't pick it up and, and think it means whatever we want it to mean. No, there's, there's a very specific and intentional meaning. And of course, there's many meanings. God can shine light on a, a variety of meanings, but we need to be careful at the same time in how we handle the Word of God and make sure we're not taking things, you know, out of context or using them in a way that God had not designed them to be used. What does uh, Paul go on to say? In, in, in verse 16, but shun profane and idle babblings. Okay, so he's saying those who aren't rightly dividing the word of truth, that's what idle and profane babblings are. He says shun them. You know, it's okay to shun some things. Um, shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. You know, a lot of times people like babblings, uh, uh, Profane and idle babblings. It like tickles our ears, right? And he says, yeah, that message really spreads. It spreads fast. It's like cancer. People gobble it up. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Oh, now he name calls. He, named, he calls out two ministers in Ephesus. Guys he know personally. In fact, he had already called out Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy. We'll get there in a second. Verse 18. Who is strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. Well, that's interesting. We'll talk about that in a moment. And they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Now he's quoting from the book of Numbers. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Okay. 
So he named calls two guys. In fact, um, Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 1.20, he had already said that he had delivered that one over to Satan. It's the same language he uses for the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that he handed that one over to Satan. What does that mean? That's just a language to say that he excommunicated him from the fellowship and the life and the worship of the church. He said, you are no longer welcome here until you repent. You're no longer welcome here. That false teacher, Hymenaeus, sorry, you're excommunicated from this fellowship, from this congregation. You're no longer welcome here until you repent. And what exactly was this guy saying? Well, he was saying, according to Paul, that the resurrection is already past. Now, that kind of sounds bizarre to us. Like, how were a bunch of people believing that the resurrection already passed? Like, wouldn't that be visible? I think that's what most of us think, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't the resurrection be visible? Wouldn't it be obvious if the resurrection had already passed? Well, I think we're not told exactly what these guys meant by the resurrection had already passed. I think most likely what they were teaching is that the resurrection was solely uh, about a, a spiritual regathering of his people, kind of like how Exodus, or sorry, not Exodus, Ezekiel 37 talks about how an army of dry bones are raised, and it has this idea of a people who are in exile coming back to the promised land through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they see sort of the gathering of God's people through the power of the Holy Spirit in the church as sort of all there is to the doctrine of the resurrection. And that might be an aspect of what the resurrection is. It, 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 it is, and in fact, in this life when we believe in Jesus, we are told by Scripture that we move from death into life. That is the first resurrection when you come to believe in Jesus. But how many know the Bible also teaches about a second resurrection, right? And I think that's what Paul is saying, is that these guys were only affirming a first resurrection, but they weren't affirming a second resurrection. And by doing that, they were overthrowing the faith of the Son. Aren't you glad there will be a second resurrection? What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, as Roman 8 says, all of creation is groaning for the, for the liberation of the sons of men. One day, all decay, all death, all disease, all thorns, everything about the curse that is still a part of our world, God will fully liberate it. One day, death will be thrown fully into the lake of fire, fully destroyed forever, right? Not just spiritual death, but physical death. One day, our bodies, as 1 Corinthians 15 affirms, one day we will be raised glorious like Jesus Christ. And that's an aspect of something that is still future. Has there been a spiritual resurrection take place? Yes, but that's not the only aspect of what a resurrection means. Okay? Look what he goes on to say in 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Um, I think he's saying, you know, listen, there's always going to be Philetuses and Hymenaeuses in the church. There's always going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus told in several parables in Matthew 13 how there are tares in the wheat field and they look the same. But guess what? At the end of the age, uh, the Father will fully divide who is the wheat and who is the tare. He's saying the kingdom is like a, a dragnet and it gathers everything because it's a giant net and it, it pulls everything in its path. It, it pulls to the shore. And ultimately, it, it's God who will sort out, you know, who's the true sheep and who's the wolf in sheep clothing. Sometimes we can know because they make themselves plain. 
And Paul says, yeah, you deal with that Hymenaeus and you deal with that Philetus. If they're a false teacher and their teaching is spreading like cancer, you deliver them over to Satan like I did, Timothy. you got to have the courage to do that. But in another sense, there might be people who just weasel their way in and, and God will just separate them out at the end. Okay. Well, verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. He's constantly reminding him of this, even in 1 Timothy. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul still had a heart for these people. He wanted them to be delivered from you know, the traps of, of Satan. In fact, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, when he delivers the, the man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, when he delivers him over in Satan, he tells them why. He tells them for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved. In fact, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy, and it, he says, purge the wicked one from among you. Purge the wicked one from among you is quoted in Deuteronomy five times. It has to do with capital offenses. That whenever someone was, had a capital offense, of course, that means they were put to death. Well, Paul, he applies that Old Covenant principle and the New Covenant this way. He says, yes, we're putting them to death, but we're not putting them to death. We're putting their flesh to death. How? By handing them over to Satan. They're going to realize real quick they need the church. And when they realize that, guess what? Their flesh is going to be destroyed. They've, they've had the real good death penalty, and their spirit's going to be saved. Okay? That's the same sort of desire that Paul has for Hymenaeus and Philetus. It is a redemptive death penalty. That's what the New Covenant does, right? <laughs> it turns some of that Old Covenant death penalty into redemptive death penalty. All right. Well, you know, we're going to end the service with some two very exciting things. We have a testimony, and then we have a baptism. Amen? So I just want to remind you of, 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 of what we've learned, you know, we're to be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ, right? The grace of Jesus Christ must undergird all our ministry and all of our witnessing. How many know that? Christ's ministers are like professional soldiers, professional athletes, and hardworking farmers. We are to always remember that Jesus Christ is risen and that Jesus Christ is reigning and that we have no reason to be down or to fear, but we in fact, can fulfill the tasks that God is fulfilling us to fulfill. And lastly, ministers must be diligent to properly handle Scripture. We must rightly divide the word of truth. We just can't make Scripture say whatever we want. No, Scripture actually, it has an intent, it has a meaning, and we're called to rightly divide it and apply it in a way that brings life. So I want to invite uh, Letty and Hope.